Thanks, Heather. Who is this man? We're going to unpack that from our passage today. My name's Josh. It's a pleasure to speak to you in our online service today. As Dave mentioned, we're going to be covering a new topic, a new series over the course of Lent leading up to Easter. We're going to be looking at the person of Jesus and how encounters with him changes people forever. We're going to be looking at the remarkable leader that is Jesus. So, To start us off, what I want us to do is I'm going to ask a question and I want you to think about it. Maybe you're on your own, maybe you're with your family, with your kids, with your partner, uh, with friends, with flatmates, whoever you're watching this with. I want you to ask the question, what makes a remarkable person? Okay, going to give you 60 seconds. Question's going to come up on the screen. What makes a remarkable person? Go. Brilliant. Well, hopefully you've discussed loads of different ways that somebody might be remarkable. Characters, qualities, characteristics, whatever they might be. Something that jumps out to me that makes somebody remarkable is somebody who doesn't just talk the talk, it's somebody who walks the walk as well. Somebody who talks the talk and walks the walk. I was laughing with a friend earlier this week. We went for a walk because that's about all you can do at the moment. And we were talking about how his dad has all these different kind of phrases and idioms and wise words and sayings. And one of his regulars is do as I say, not as I do. And I laughed and I found that funny because I can relate to that. I can remember my own parents back in the day where they'd be laying down the law about something or they'd be telling you how to do something. And then every now and then you catch them in their hypocrisy. I remember like we used to get told as kids, don't ever swear, don't swear, don't ever swear, swearing's bad, okay? I even remember my gran washing my mouth out with soap from swearing one time, okay? We weren't allowed to swear. And I remember the first time I heard my dad say a swear word and I suddenly thought, all bets are off, here we go, I've caught him in it, hypocrisy, I'm now going to say every swear word I can think of. Before even the very last letter of his swear word came out of his mouth, I was preparing a whole list of swear words that I knew as a kid to rattle out there and then. And of course, after the customary uh, slap behind the back of the head, uh, Dad would say something to the effect of, do as I say, not as I do. Words are important. But we don't need somebody who just talks the talk. We need people who are going to walk the walk too. And for me, we find that in Jesus. Our passage today is in chapter 8, and that follows chapter 7 in Matthew's Gospel. And in chapter 7, what we have is Jesus delivering the talk of his life. Arguably some of the greatest words ever spoken on a mount. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. That's what happens in that chapter. 
And at the very end of his sermon, he starts to say this. He says, if you don't practice what I'm talking about, it's like building your house on sand. It's going to crumble. It's going to fall. But if you put these words into practice, if you walk the walk and talk the talk, it's like building your house on solid rock. What makes a remarkable person to me is somebody who talks the talk and walk the walk. And that's what we've got in Jesus. His words and his deeds align. Our world needs a remarkable leader. Maybe you've been feeling let down by our leaders lately. We are called to pray for them. It's such a difficult job. I can imagine it. But it's hard not to feel let down and disappointed by their failures or their hypocrisy or even their corruption sometimes. And in our personal lives, we need a remarkable leader. I need somebody to follow, to set the way, to inspire me, to encourage me, to protect me, to lead me in how I should live my life. I need a remarkable leader and I find that in Jesus. Jesus is the remarkable leader that we need. And we find that in our passage this morning. He's a remarkable leader because he is a human. That's the first thing that jumps out at me. Yeah, our passage, it's got storms being calmed and it's got wise words being said to people. But for me, it's the humanity we see in Jesus that jumps out at me. Because it's in his humanity that I find somebody I can trust in, that I can relate to. Because he looks like me. Where do I find it? Well, there's a moment where this person comes up to me and says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Son of Man meaning saviour. Son of Man being, I'm the person who's here to save you, to serve you, to rescue you. I'm greater than a fox and a bird, surely, and I've not even got a place to put my head because I'm tired. I want to rest because I'm human. Because Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's the Son of Man, he's the saviour, but he's fully human too. And in that humanity, I find somebody I can relate to. Later on, when they're on the boat and the waves are crashing in, where's Jesus? He's fast asleep. He's exhausted. I mean, he must be exhausted in the deepest of sleep to not be woken by the crashing waves. Okay? And in Mark's Gospel, where it tells this story, we, can, we find Jesus in the stern of the boat and he's got his head on a little cushion. and He's just resting. He's having a nap. And the humanity in that brings me closer to him. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus is fully human as well as fully God. It's easy sometimes to see God as King of Kings, creator, high and lofty. But if we forget that he's a human too, sometimes that makes him feel distant. We have to remember God is Emmanuel, God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, moved into the neighbourhood sweated like we sweat, felt pain like we feel pain, the heat and the dust and toiled and worked and got exhausted after a long day and needed a sleep. It's because he's relatable, because he's like me, that I find him remarkable. Jesus is also remarkable though, because it's not that he's just a human. He has to be more than that to be the leader that I need. He has to be above that. Jesus isn't just fully man, he is fully God. He's remarkable because he has authority. And there's three things he has authority over that I think we find in our passage that make him remarkable. First and foremost, he, is, he has authority over the law. He is the new way of following, connecting with God. 
In the passage, a teacher of the law, a priest or a rabbi, you might say, somebody who's respected, well-known in the community, has high credentials, knows the story and the history of God and his people, that you might come to somebody like this for advice. Listen, I'm struggling with my work or I'm struggling in my relationships or I'm struggling with a sickness or an illness or, or something I'm struggling with personally. You would come to this person and say, what does God say about that? What does the law teach about that? Rabbi, teacher, tell me. You would come to this person and this person would be the resident expert. He would be well known. This person was almost like the link between some of the people and God. It was a way of connecting because they taught the law, which was the way of knowing and following God. But this teacher, this expert, is now looking at the person of Jesus, this obscure, random, unknown person, if for all intents and purposes a refugee, from a poor family, maybe he's a tradesman, maybe he's a carpenter, and he's come, this teacher's coming to this person and saying, I want to follow you wherever you will go. I want to follow you. Even the teachers of the law come to Jesus, and that's because Jesus is the new way, that he is the fulfilment of the law. He has authority over the law. He is the way that we can follow. So he's remarkable because he's human, because he has authority over the law, but also because he has authority over our lives. He touches the whole of our lives. He doesn't need a thing and yet asks for everything from us. Why? Because he wants to save all of us. Because what he has for us is all-encompassing and captivating. Jesus is captivating and he has authority over our lives. In our passage also, another person comes to Jesus and says, look, I want to follow you, but I've got to go and bury my father. And this person is being a good Jewish person, a good Jewish man, a good Jewish kid. As part of the culture, it is important. Your first priority is when one of your parents dies, you're there burying them. Now, if this person's parent had already died, if his father was already dead, he wouldn't be having this conversation with Jesus. So what we can gather from this is that this person's father is about to die, maybe in a day or two days or a few weeks or a few months or maybe even in a year. Who knows? But this person's saying, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I need to be around for when my dad dies. And then when he's dead and I bury him, then I can come and find you. Because that's my priority. Because... Who am I if I don't stick around to bury my father? What will people think of me? What will people think of my faith? What, what will my other family members say about me? What will I say about myself? No, I need to be there. That's my priority. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Following me is the greatest thing you could do with your whole life. And I need you now. And I need all of you. I need to be your first and foremost priority above your family, above your culture, above what society might say, or above what the neighbours might say. You've got to follow me and follow now. He is captivating. Sometimes I think we get so stuck in the cost of things that it holds us back from the true value of what we're paying for. Oscar Wilde said this, everyone knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. We don't know what happened to this guy. We don't know if he said, okay, Jesus, right, okay, I'll abandon all that, I'm going to follow you. Or if he said, actually, that's, that cost is too much. That cost is too much. I'm going to go and bury my father. I'd love to, but I've got to go. And I think we do this all the time. Sometimes we go, Jesus, I know the way I should go, 
but the cost of that seems too much to bear. I'd rather do things my way. I, I do that so often, more often than I care to admit I do that. And when I do that, what's happening is I'm getting lost in the cost of it and forgetting the true value. That actually, whatever the cost might, it might seem like to follow Jesus in a moment or over a lifetime is nothing compared to what Jesus gives us in return. It's nothing compared to the destiny that it sets us on. You see, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. Salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It's given freely, it's for all, it's on offer right now, for you, now, forever. But it's going to take your whole life because Jesus doesn't want to save bits of it and leave the rest to you. He wants to take all of it, transform all of it, set you on the path that he made for you because it is good and valuable. Jesus has authority over our lives because he's captivating. And lastly, he also has authority over our storms. I've been in a storm, okay? A few years ago, me and three friends, we took two canoes and we wanted to do the Great Glen Challenge, okay? It's when you canoe from the west side of Scotland all the way up the Great Glen, all the way up to the east, okay? You go through a load of different locks down the Caledonian Canal, it's amazing. Loch Lochy, Loch Ness, it's amazing, it's challenging. And usually you do it over four or five days, we wanted to do it in three because competition and ego, I don't know, but we decided we wanted to do it in three. And, and we also, um, three out of four of us were completely inexperienced in canoeing, okay? Like I've maybe gone a couple of times, my friend Stuart maybe gone a couple of times, but generally we'd, we'd never really done it and not done a trip like that. But it was amazing, it was all lined up to be awesome, canoeing all the way through the day, camping at night, beers, cooking food over a fire, I mean it's just the dream, it was going to be amazing. And it was amazing, and it was going brilliantly. One of our member, one of the four, Mark, not Mark Cameron, even though he is an avid canoe, he can be seen often stranded in the fourth, being rescued by coast guards in his canoe. It wasn't him, it was my school friend Mark. Mark was the experienced one. Mark was the man of action. Mark had done the challenge before, so we were trusting in him. We were following what he was doing. We were following where he was going, what he was suggesting. He was a guy who knew the techniques of how to do all the J paddle maneuver, whatever you call it. I mean, I literally, I literally don't know much about canoeing and didn't know and don't know much still, but we were trusting in Mark. And the day that we got to Loch Ness, Loch Ness is 27 miles long. It's the real beast of the challenge. At points, it's a mile wide. The wind howls down the middle of it. It can whip up waves and swells that even motorboats would struggle with. The day that we got to it happened to be quite a windy day, okay? We'd, we'd, we'd been canoeing in the morning up until that point. We'd stopped at a little pub, pub lunch, ready to hit the lock, thinking, like feeling quite good about ourselves. And we met these three guys who were doing a sort of similar challenge, except they were doing it in sea kayaks. And these three guys had all of the gear, helmets, uh, they had wetsuits, they had uh, buoyancy aids, they had everything. They had their sea kayaks, they were ready to go. And they were nervous. So we were standing with them, watching them set up, ready to go. And they said, look, we're going to go for it, we're just going to see how it goes. So the first guy set off. He's heading down the lock. The wind is crazy. The waves are pretty intense. And this guy's doing okay. And before long, we can't really see where he's gotten up to. He's maybe gone round to one of the cliff edges. We don't know. So we're thinking, okay, that's fine. The second guy set off. 
He got about halfway uh, the distance that we thought the other guy had gone, and um, suddenly he was in the water. He'd capsized. One of the waves had got him, capsized, couldn't get back in his kayak. The Coast Guard then proceeded to go out and rescue him. Third guy's thinking, maybe I'm going to leave this one, and he gets a call from the first guy saying, I had to moor in at this random little spot. I'm going to camp here overnight. It's, this is impassable. That's the scene. The experts, with all the gear, knew it was a bad idea. In step the four of us. We're thinking, Mark's done this before. We're in canoes, which are bigger. We're, there's four of us, not three of us, and there's two to a boat. I mean, surely we can do this. And in terms of gear, like these canoes are pretty good stuff. Like the paddles are decent. I think I was wearing a Portsmouth top and some swimming shorts. Like we had all the gear, in theory. And we thought, let's just tackle it, let's go for it. So we set off into the water. There's a bit of a crowd now, we can't turn back. And as we set off, we need to decide which side we're going to go, south side, north side. And we say, Mark, which way should we go? Remember, Mark's our action man, man of experience. Mark goes, I don't know. Okay, well, you've only done it once before, so you probably only did one of the sides, right? So you know, well, which side did you do? I've not done it. Sorry, you've not done, but you've done the Great Glen. Well, yeah, I've done the Great Glen, but you've not done Loch Ness. No. Side note, if you've not done Loch Ness as part of your Great Glen Canoe Challenge, you've not done the Great Glen Canoe Challenge. Loch Ness is about half of the whole challenge as a whole, okay? If you've not done Loch Ness, you've basically just had a nice little paddle and some canals and a few small locks. Loch Ness is the beast, okay? And Mark hadn't done it. The guy that we were trusting to have all the experience had not done it. Okay. The next two and a half hours were terrifying. We're on the lock, on the south side, cliff edge, nowhere to moor in, battling the waves. Me and Stuart were so, we were sharing a canoe. We were so bad at canoeing that we couldn't even go in a straight line. We were zigzagging like this. We joke now that we did the Great Glen Canoe Challenge twice because we probably covered double the distance. We couldn't even keep the thing straight on a flat surface. These were huge swells. Literally water was pouring in. You're bailing out and paddling, bailing out and paddling and when you're not trying to avoid the cliff edge and stay in the water and not fall off the boat you're also trying to avoid giant boulders underneath the surface of the water which could do one of two things one you're going to hit it and you're going to have a titanic situation on your hands two you're going to you're going to moor yourself on it which we did three times by the way became pretty good at getting unstuck without falling in the water but nonetheless if we went in the water it's game over the waves were insane okay genuinely for two and a half hours i was terrified until eventually we found somewhere to move in the disciples in this passage, they had a similar, well, they probably had a bit more of an intense experience than we did. The scripture talks about this being a violent storm. And in fact, actually the Sea of Galilee is in a basin surrounded by mountains. And you've got cool air coming in from the Mediterranean. And then you've got hot, humid air resting above the water. And when that hit, it would cause sudden violent storms. And these guys were fishermen. They were experienced. They'd been in those waters all their lives fishing. When they're in a storm and they think they're going to drown, it's probably a pretty bad one. These guys are in that situation. The water's crashing in and they wake Jesus up. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, we need you. Rescue us. And without a second's hesitation, Jesus stands. He rebukes the wind and he calms the waves. Jesus has authority over the storm. In our passage, we've got a very, very literal, practical example of a storm that Jesus can silence in an instant. But sometimes the storms of life are hidden, they're unseen, they're unknown to many. Storms of the mind, 
anxiety, depression, grief and sadness. Storms of the heart, heartache, heartbreak, disappointments, failures. Storms like our bodies. In, our, in the rest of chapter 8, we see, we see Jesus healing people, healing sicknesses, delivering people from demons. We have storms of our bodies sometimes. Jesus has the power to quieten and calm those storms. Sometimes he doesn't quieten them in an instant. Sometimes he doesn't just say one word and it's all over. But what you need to know is that he has authority over the storm nonetheless. And that you need to know he's in the boat. Whether the, whether the waves are being calmed or not, he's still in the boat. He's still there with you. He has authority over the storms. Jesus is a remarkable leader because he's a human. Because he has authority over the law. Because he's the way. He has authority over our lives because he's captivating. He has authority over the storms because he's faithful. We can trust in him. So what I want to ask you is three questions. And I'm asking myself these questions over this next week and over the course of Lent. And we can ask them together of ourselves. Where do you struggle to let Jesus be the way in your life? in how you should live, in how you should conduct yourself, in the habits and behaviours that you form, in the ways that you should approach struggles, issues in work, issues in family, or even just the way that you conduct yourself as a Christian day to day. Where are you struggling to follow his way, not just your way or the world's way or somebody else's way? Second question, where do you struggle to commit to Jesus? Are there areas in your life you feel the call of God, but you're making excuses? Maybe you feel called into some, some uh, vocation or specific path. Or maybe you feel his call regarding something that you're doing that you need to stop doing. Or something that you haven't started that you need to start. Where are you struggling to commit to the captivating Jesus? And lastly, where are you struggling to trust in the faithful Jesus in your storm? Whatever storm it might be, storm of the mind, of the body, of the heart or a very real storm that you're facing. Sickness, heartache, disappointment, fear. Where are you struggling to trust the faithful Jesus, that he's there in the boat and he has authority? So this Lent, let's make him our ultimate way maker in life. This Lent, let's let ourselves be captivated by him by the one who captures our heart's greatest desire and our soul's deepest ambition. And this Lent, let's choose to trust him in every circumstance, every high and every low. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the way. Thank you, God, that you are captivating. Thank you, God, that you are faithful. Jesus, we choose over Lent to trust in you and to follow you with all of our lives. Help us where we struggle in one of those areas or all of those areas. We trust in you. We choose to trust in you. You are always good. Thank you for being the remarkable leader that we need. In Jesus' name, amen.